1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Donald Trump has raised many questions about the nature of US democracy, and one of them concerns the role of the opposition. Advocates of Western democracy have traditionally pointed to the role of the opposition in holding government to account as being a vital part of the system. The deal has been that oppositions can criticise those in power without going to jail, or worse, but in return they have to offer losers' consent. If they lose an election, they accept that someone else governs. And the fact that Trump hasn't really accepted that deal has given significant relevance to Alexander Kishner's book, Legitimate Opposition, which uh, unusually does not have a subtitle. Can I ask you why that is? First of all, welcome.
1: Just because I often find it annoying that academics have a kind of thrilling title and then a very obscure set of subtitles afterwards, so I try to avoid it when titling my books. Yes. Does your
2: publisher object? I think it helps people get up search engines, probably.
1: Uh, Maybe. Honestly, I always thought that this book would just be called Legitimate Opposition, because that's what I was interested in, and I I never had a subtitle in mind. Well,
2: congratulations. It's a very (laughs) good trend to start. And and, um, uh, so, can you Tell us, I mean, one of the points you're making is that legitimate opposition goes back a long way uh, to a time when, you know, political parties weren't necessarily in place, but there was legitimate opposition.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just to give you a a bit of background, the the last time that this was a big topic of interest was the 1950s, um, because people in the West, people living in Germany or the United States or in, in the UK, certainly, were concerned about what distinguished Uh, regimes like the U.S., Western Germany and the U.S. from popular Eastern regimes. Um, And they were focused on the idea that while both kinds of regimes had elections, only in the West did the opposition play like a big role. And at the time, there was also a kind of effort to think about the origins of this practice. And the idea was that the practice really was invented in Britain and the United States in the 18th century. And I've always found that kind of profoundly odd because I knew that there was this history of political competition in Greece. I knew there was this history of political competition in Rome. And it seemed like the fundamental thing that was going on in these places was that, as you said in your introduction, the losers gave a kind of consent. The losers in those ancient regimes left office when they lost. And so that's why I was always kind of skeptical of this kind of traditional story that it, it was really about the 18th century. And so that was one of the reasons, in fact, why I wanted to write the book.
2: But is the defining characteristic of a, of a non-authoritarian system that there's legitimate opposition, which is what they, you're saying they're saying in the fifties, or is it just that people leave, people leave power?
1: I actually think that the two things are inseparable because I think if there isn't a legitimate opposition, in fact, the people in power won't leave. So, And and the reason why is because organized competition is the only way for people who don't control the resources of the state to actually take power. When you look at what's going on, for instance, in Hungary today, even though there's a kind of form of competition, because the party in power can use the resources of the state to kind of entrench itself, the people out of power have very little Chance of uh, holding power, and the same thing is true in a place like Singapore. So it's crucial for a system of legitimate opposition not only that there be kind of elections, but that people outside of power can organize themselves.
2: We'll talk about how much that matters uh, as we go on, but just on the history first. So you're basically saying in the Greek period there was, you know, no part, no parties, but there was a role for the opposition, and that. Basically, competitors in politics were not punished because they disagreed with those in power.
1: It, that's exactly right. And the, the same thing is true in Rome, which is much less egalitarian than in Greece. But that, there's a whole system of rules in place and a whole system of, of competition which allow people uh, to seek power. And then uh, when they lose, uh, they leave office.
2: And then in the 19th century, the political parties come in and somewhat formalize it.
1: Exactly. And the key, thing, the key argument I make right, the, is that it isn't the case. So previously what people thought was that parties and legitimate opposition go together. You can't have one without the other. And that doesn't make sense in part because in, in England, in, in Britain and in the United States, you have elections before you have parties of so people winning office and losing office before the, the, the kind of rise of parties. And what I argue in the book and what I, what I think is true is that it's, it's really the development of the modern state which makes parties integral to opposition. Because once you have the modern state and once prime ministers in England are using the state to advance their political ends, then it's only via parties that you can have an effective opposition. It's only by organizing the opposition that you can actually work. And the same thing is true in the United States. There's a lot of resistance to parties uh, in the 18th century, but once you have the first governments and once those governments start using the resources of the state to kind of advance their electoral ends by you know, giving people offices and so on, then it's only with a party that you can try to oppose that.
2: We'll get on to the benefits of uh, having legitimate opposition uh, later, just now sort of defining terms. You've got this phrase legitimate opposition. What is illegitimate opposition? Can you define that for us?
1: Well, I mean, I think illegitimate opposition, I mean, I don't think you need to write a book basically to know what it is. It's, It's not accepting the idea that when you lose power, Uh, you'll leave office. You know, I was listening to a radio program last night about the right-wing party that may actually take power uh, very soon in Italy. And one of the kind of early ideas of this party was that it would compete for office, but that kind of sotto voce or kind of behind the scenes, it would be in a position to keep power once it took power and it wouldn't leave office. For me, that kind of exemplifies what illegitimate opposition is. That is, you're trying to use the the kind of system of opposition to take power, but you're not willing to give up power. And obviously, Trump also kind of personifies that.
2: Yeah, but there are things short of that, which uh, might still be considered illegitimate. So for example, what about the use of violence, which may be seen as, you know, legitimate in some extreme circumstances for protesters to do?
1: yeah absolutely. so the the key thought is that legitimate opposition is a peaceful way and a com- peaceful competitive way of organizing power or for organizing the pursuit of office and obviously the the use of violence would be inconsistent with that. Uh, cheating, you know, trying to vote many times, keeping people from participating. all of those things would be inconsistent with the practice.
2: What about law breaking though, by civil r- protesters?
1: The term that I use, because I think that is the right term, is legitimate opposition. But what I'm referring to specifically is this form of organized competition for power. There are lots of forms of like opposition that is legitimate that don't take place within that competition. So, for example, there are people who are protesting, there are women who are protesting violence against women in Iran this week. They're engaging in acts of legitimate opposition in the sense that their opposition is justified. But obviously, that's not within the context of what I refer to as a system of legitimate opposition. That is this competitive system.
2: I don't want to press it too far. But I mean, surely, you know, if you take that Iranian example, some of those women on the streets and some of their predecessors who've been, you know, breaking Iranian law by going out to protest are actually seeking a change of government towards a more democratic and pluralistic government. Uh, so I wonder where they stand in terms of the rights and wrongs of what they're doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that what they're doing is actually obviously consistent with the argument that I'm making. What I'm trying to say is this practice is valuable. And, and one of the reasons why it's valuable is because any individual vote, any individual decision isn't final, Right. Nothing is kind of ultimately settled, which is why it's important for people to leave office and which is why the process continues. And what those people, where the right to resist kind of comes from is a kind of related idea that political decisions aren't totally final and that people themselves have the right to resist them, you know, depending on the circumstance, either legally or uh, in particularly grave situations, illegally.
2: Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's talk about what's happening in the US. Um, Mm -hmm. We've got a very interesting situation two years to go before the next presidential election. Trump has had two years in opposition. How would you characterize his attitude and his behavior, his conduct in those two years?
1: His activities are absolutely inconsistent with the idea that opposition is a valuable practice. His attitude, I mean, he hasn't accepted that he lost. He never accepted that he would have lost the first time around. He's acted consistently to undermine uh, the processes and procedures that allow us to have peaceful changes of power in the United States. And I think to the degree that it were possible, the U.S. Congress, when he was in power, should have taken action to keep him from pursuing office in the future. His actions are so grave, so inconsistent with our reasons for valuing, valuing our political system that I think he should have been kept from pursuing office in the future.
2: And, and why has the system, if, if it's a failure, as you think, why has the system failed?
1: But, well, because these, the, the political incentives of the people who are in Congress— are not consistent with keeping him out of power, and we see that you know that's not just true in the United States, but we see that in countries all over Europe where it's extremely difficult for the political system to keep one what one might call anti system actors out of the political arena so even though people like me, academics like myself say these people should be kept from participating and, and Trump is just such a clear example such an easy case in a way. But it, you see across Europe and the United States, it's, it is very difficult as a practical matter for these political parties to act against their self-interest.
2: Right. But there is also the law. And the Attorney General in the United States is looking at all this and making decisions on whether or not to charge uh, Donald Trump and some of his close associates with crimes. And you know, there are many who think, he is being surprisingly reluctant to do that. Can you talk us through that in the context of uh, legitimate opposition politics?
1: Well, I think there's a slight distinction to be drawn. If I understand correctly, what the Justice Department is looking into um, doesn't fundamentally have to do with things that occurred uh, during and after the election. Um, Whereas prior to Trump leaving office, the Congress of the United States had a political tool at its disposal where they could have impeached him and kept him from running. And that really would have been the way to, the right way to block him from pursuing power. The kind of legal uh, mechanisms that are being used to pursue him now, I think are less effective as mechanisms for uh, trying to keep him from office. And I'm not sure uh, whether they could ultimately even be used to do so. It's, it's it's obscure to me whether that would even work. It's it's And as you're suggesting, it's not clear that there's a will to do so. But even if there was a will, it's not clear that they could actually do it that way. They, in a way, they, they missed their chance to do it. Let,
2: let's get on to the uh, obvious objection to Uh, this defense of legitimate opposition, which is that there are are now political systems that are more effective than Western democracies in terms of delivering desired outcomes like economic growth. So when you look at China, the obvious example, what merits do you see in the Chinese method of doing politics?
1: I mean, in the book, I focus less on China because I think there are enough violations of civil liberties and horrible things going on in china but i'm not sure it's it's as attractive it's a very attractive ideal but i think a place like singapore uh, by contrast is a more difficult case for somebody like me and what i argue basically is that if you look at the way the political system is organized it treats notwithstanding the fact that people there live a good life it treats its citizens in a way, like children are like pawns. It gets them to participate in a political system where they act as if they have a choice, but they don't really. And I argue that that's an indication or a sign or, uh, of a dysfunctional, politi- a dysfunctional and ultimately illiberal political system. Right.
2: But how do you cope with the fact that it it, it has delivered huge benefits to the
1: population? But it's it's not. I mean, there are many democracies or many systems of legitimate opposition that have also generated very good benefits to their population. You know, for what it's worth, the United States is one of the richest countries uh, on the planet. I mean, obviously, there's a giant question of poverty here. But the middle class is extremely wealthy. There are countries in Europe as well where people are extremely well off. So I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a very strong case to be made that uh, authoritarianism equals good development. There's so many, be- ca- there are so many cases where that isn't true that I think one would have a hard time making that case.
2: Well, it is hard, is it not, to find examples of democratic development? in developing world countries, uh, let's say, since the Second World War, uh, that, have, that, have, that have been successful. I mean, you know, there is a democratic tradition in Europe and the United States, which has delivered uh, significant benefits. But when you look elsewhere, it's not clear that, that th- those, those uh, political cultures are in a position to, to use democracy to deliver the same benefits.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not. You know, this is far. You know, I'm a political philosopher, so this is we're getting a bit far from my field sure, of expertise. Sure. But, but, <laughs> but, I, sure. but I take your point. But I would say, like a place like South Korea, I think is uh, an example mm-hmm. where if you were there in the 1960s or 70s, it was a, a a pretty poor place, and now it's an extremely prosperous place in many ways. Ideal Taiwan might be another example. And so I don't think that there are no cases in which places outside of Europe or the United States have been able to prosper as democracies. Now, that being said, I still think there is a challenge from places like Singapore. If I mean, and I have students who are from Singapore and they say, well, what? why, why would we embrace a system of legitimate opposition, given the obvious qualities of our regime, leaving aside whether others other places should choose the regime we have. Why should we have a system of legitimate opposition? And what I try to argue with, what I try to argue to them is that their their political system, in fact, treats them in the same way that I treat my children, in the sense that I offer my children choices, and they typically are invidious choices. Would you rather clean your room or or not watch TV for a month? And they, they say to me, okay, I'd rather clean my room. Now, I've manipulated them into cleaning their room. And in the Singaporean regime, that's also the way that political choices are made. The citizens have a choice, but it's not a real choice. And the fact that they're being treated like my children, I would argue, is inconsistent with what we would want from a good regime, notwithstanding all the good qualities that Singapore brings uh, to the conversation.
2: And that raises an interesting question, which is whether electorates in advanced Western democracies are offered much of a choice because the mainstream political parties, I mean, it's no longer the case in the US, but, uh, you know, in, in, in Europe and in the US until recently, the mainstream political parties have been offering pretty similar choices. And, you know, there are those on both ends of the political spectrum who say they don't feel they do get a real choice.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's an important sentiment and something I spend a lot of time talking about in the book, right, which is, our political systems are, are very far from what we would want them to be. The choices we have are very far from where we want them to be. I, I think it was uh, Daniel Conbendant, but I could be wrong, who said that uh, voters in Europe were offered the choice between gin and tonic and tonic and gin. Um, and so uh, I'm alive to that idea. And what I try to do to defend in the book is say that these Political systems, even if you think, like to take the UK as an example, that the, the kind of Blairite controlled or now, you know, a, a kind of center left version of the Labour Party and a kind of more centrist version of the Tory Party doesn't offer our voters a kind of real decision. Nonetheless, there's a great deal at stake when these decisions are made. The same goes in the United States. The same is true certainly in France and these other countries. So even while we might say, voters don't have the breadth of choices that we would desire. Nonetheless, the stakes of these decisions are still important. And that means voters are still exercising an important role, even if we could imagine it being better. And and,
2: and what about the, the explanation for what's been happening in the United States, and you've described Hungary, the lack of constraint on some politicians in in, you know, in our age? Have you understood what is undermining the importance in people's minds of legitimate opposition? I mean, it seems that your idea is is under challenge. Why is that
1: happening? I mean, this is, I think it's one of the great empirical questions of our moment. There are, and I don't, you know, it's, I don't have a hypothesis about it. You know, there's some people think that as Societies become wealthier, um, they become more ideological. And as they become more ideological, they're less willing to compromise uh, with their opponents because there's mo- apparently there's more at stake. There are people who think that without uh, competition between kind of the, you know, the Cold War era competition that these societies are more coming apart. But I, I also think, but I don't, and I don't have a, like a, a strong view of it. But what I do think is that it's important to understand that these aren't new questions. That if you look, for example, again, at the 1950s, many of these questions were live in the 1950s. You had large communist parties throughout Europe. There were, large, there were significant questions and debates about whether those parties were committed to democracy, whether they would leave power if they were able to gain it. And so while it is the case that we had kind of forgotten that these things happen, it isn't the case that this is entirely new. And unfortunately, I don't know the exact cause of it. I wish that I did.
2: Right. No. So, I mean, again, it's taking you a bit beyond the the, the scope of your book, but it's a very interesting question. And I mean, as is another thing which you must have turned your mind to a bit, which is when you hear all the comparisons drawn today between now and the pre-Nazi period and the warnings that many on the left make, and you know, many on the left are accused of making the warning far too often, that, that there is, you know, a parallel and that a period of fascism is coming. Uh, have you reflected at all on on that and whether the diminishing role for an opposition in our uh, advanced Western democracies, like the United States, is is parallel to the thirties?
1: You know, I find I've reflected on it a great deal and I find it extremely difficult to draw a conclusion one way or the other. So I find myself extremely skeptical of the people who are making those comparisons, but I also find myself skeptical of the people who (laughs) are quick to, to jettison them. And I'll tell you one thing that I, I talk with when I encounter people who are a bit older than me, who have experienced, for example, uh, 1968. And I ask them, you know, this is a period at least in the United States where key people who are running for office, Bobby Kennedy are assassinated, key political leaders are assassinated. There's unrest in the streets uh, throughout the world. There's a real sense that things are falling apart. And, when, and I often say like, having lived through that experience, does that give you some purchase on whether this is going to be like that or is it something different? And it's interesting to hear them almost uniformly say, we have no idea. But it's, it's difficult to get a grip on exactly what's going on in this particular moment. And that's something that I, I feel acutely all the time. Yeah,
2: because c- when you keep uh, drawing these parallels with the past, I mean, it, it does seem that we're in a new situation, actually, uh, that, that may not have many precedents.
1: I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about the 1930s, I mean, if nothing else, we're just so much wealthier. I mean, at least in the West, like we're radically wealthier. And that means we have radically more to lose were we to engage in these kinds of forms of civil war. And so it's just very difficult to imagine exactly what to draw this kind of simple parallel. And we're not divided in the same way. The politics is quite different. It's all extremely different. And so I I personally, I find it difficult to get my bearings using the examples, let's say, of the, you know, pre-World War II period.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: legitimate opposition? You know, you say that we're much richer than we were in the 30s. But of course, some people feel relatively poorer compared to the super rich.
1: How does that play in? Well, I think that's, that's a really important question, because I think, I think of legitimate opposition as an achievement. That should be defended. And the reason why I think it's an achievement that should be defended is because in unequal societies like ours, it's easy to imagine the people who exercise that extra weight, who have that extra money, designing a political system or uh, changing the political system so that it was even more in their favor. And I think we're lucky to have a political system in which the mass of people are able to uh, shape the political terrain. So while I think, and to act against inequality. So while I think that that, uh, inequality is a kind of key target, which we should be acting against, I think it's also the setting in which we can kind of appreciate how serious an achievement our political systems are. Political systems in which the vast majority of people can vote and participate and call their representatives and take action to make political change.
2: Is it too cynical, though, to think that some in the elite might think that these are also very good arrangements for them because they maintain a sort of stability that enables them to enjoy their wealth in safety?
1: Well, of course, that's what the elite always want. But the goal should be to make sure that they... I mean, the the goal should be to make sure that they enjoy that while the rest of us get as much as we can. You could imagine they could be able to enjoy it in even better circumstances than they currently do. The rich, as it were, are always looking to get the best situation they can. And the goal for the rest of us is to demand as much as we can uh, from them, as it were. And often that occurs via the threat of protest or the threat of violence.
2: Right. But although there'll be some in the rich who, who who would benefit from populism, let's say, you know, and a, and a system, a much more you know, authoritarian system, uh, there are many who wouldn't. So, I mean, there is a, you know, it just depends which side of that political argument they end up on, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, so the goal is to kind of keep them not so much on board, but to appreciate exactly. I mean, the my way of thinking is to say something like this. There are systems in which the wealthy would be there are systems in which the wealthy would prefer to our own systems, where they would flourish even more and have even more money. And so we should be grateful and try to defend the systems which we have now, flawed though they may be, precisely because we can take action collectively to try to limit that at the margins or even more significantly. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the... Exactly. Okay. exactly. Consider the situation that we actually face and think about what the real alternatives are.
2: Right. And just to to tease out what you're thinking about this, when you say you're skeptical of those who make the parallel with the 30s. Yeah. Why? And then I'm going to ask you, why are you skeptical of those who immediately reject the comparison? So first of all, those who who make make the sort of parallel with the 30s.
1: Because I think it's fundamentally rhetorical and not based in any kind of Real thought that the situations are so different to blithely com- to act as if they're the same, I think is often just ungrounded. It's for lack, I mean, I don't want to use a swear word. I just think people are using it for rhetorical effect. I
2: it's sort of people-
1: glib, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's glib. You know, it's, it's, it's useful as an example because we're all so moved by those examples. But at the same time, I think it's a much more complicated comparison to make. And it would take much more work to really show that that is a good model for what's going on now. So it's not that I believe that it's impossible to do it, but I think most invocations of it are done for largely rhetorical purposes. And I'm slightly annoyed by that.
2: And the other side of it, much the same, probably.
1: Yeah, the other side of it is, how do you know that it's not more grave than it is? It seems to me that we were... I mean, we've never had a situation, certainly in my lifetime, where you had a president who was really willing not to follow the outcome of an election. And even in 2000, where you had a really contested election that was much closer, there was never the same sense of precarity in the political institutions. So people who say, of course it's going to work out, of course nothing is going to happen, I think also, it's not clear to me what they're basing that uh, surety on. So I would, I suppose I, I'm, if it were me, because I'm risk averse and because I, I, I am a partisan of these kinds of political systems, I do think that they have a great deal of value. Um, I would ask, I, I would, as I said, I would take efforts to protect them, but I'm not sure that I would constantly be invoking, um, you know, uh, the rise of Hitler in order to do that.
2: No, but I mean, there is another consideration, which is when the rise of Hitler was happening, most people didn't see it coming, right? I mean, there was a complacency then. And I I guess that's something which is is argued we should have in mind now.
1: But I don't think there was a complacency. Then if you read accounts of what Germany was like prior to uh, the rise of the Nazis. It was an incredibly violent place. You know. Yeah, there but was... I mean, m-
2: many many Jewish families didn't leave, right? And, and it now looks obvious they should have done.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking with somebody whose, I guess, great uncle moved to the United States and didn't like it and moved back to Poland, and then perished during that period. So I completely understand that, but I think this the psychology around that. Is quite different than the psychology around knowing whether there was something going on in Germany. I mean, I think it was the case that people thought that that regime was failing. Obviously, there was the inflation, but there were the series, multiple series of political crises, the failure of the state, the violence in the street, the communist fighting. So I don't think that You know, it was out of nowhere that that political regime failed. And the fact that people, you know, didn't leave, you know, I think has a great deal to do with the importance of people's lives and their desire not to give up their way uh, of life. You know, just people's inherent conservatism, which I, you know, as a middle-aged person, I completely understand.
2: And and again, I I you know don't want to take you too far from your book, but in the reading for your book, you must have yeah. You know, you've just made the point that working out whether there's a parallel between now and the '30s is you know complicated and difficult, and it would take a lot of work. In the reading for your book, did you find anyone who's done that actually? That there are people out there working on this in a serious way, trying to understand whether the parallels that are so often drawn are are you know valid or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, as I said, I I think this is a kind of important area, a vigorous and lively area of empirical research at this moment. Like there are people, I'm sure at conferences, as we're talking about this, about this very topic. But I should also say that from what I can tell, we do not know the answer to the question, that there are some initial good models. There's a, a a wonderful political scientist at Yale, whose name is Milan Svolik, who's written about these things and written about the dynamics of polarization and how that can lead potentially to conflict. But I think we're still in the early stages of understanding exactly what the dynamics are that are causing this. And I I think it, in a way, it, it caught people by academics and scholars by surprise. You know, I'll just say that this is my second project. My first project had to do with the banning of extreme political parties. And I started that in the early 2000s. And one of my advisors who was a very prominent lawyer and political philosopher said, you know, I'm really worried that this topic has very little purchase on now. It's really about Europe in the 1930s and the 50s. You know, I I don't really see a future for this project. And I suppose, luckily for me, but badly, unluckily for the world, that's just proven completely untrue. And the reason why I raise that is just to say, I think people were, have been taken off guard by what's been going on. And so I think there isn't really a good or solid or kind of final explanation for why it is that we're experiencing this situation. And you know, a lot of it could come down to Trump himself, right? It's, it could be that, although I'm, I have to say I'm skeptical. Yeah, I was
2: going to ask you about that. Whether you think that this is a moment that will pass, you know, that that um, much of what's happening in terms of whether people are willing to be legitimate oppositions uh, is is just down to him, and that it, you know, once he's gone, it'll disappear or, or not. What is your assessment of
1: that? Yeah, I mean, I, when, one thing I should say about that is, so I'm a bit skeptical of that in part because I live in North Carolina, and there has been a, was an effort here that preceded Trump to kind of organize the political institutions in a way so that only the Republicans could hold and exercise power. So when a Democratic governor took office, and I'm going to get the year wrong, but I want to say it's 2014, he was immediately stripped by the Republicans who dominated the legislature of many of his powers. That's inconsistent with the idea that the losers, when they lose, they, they accept that, right? Stripping somebody of his powers once he wins Uh, is inconsistent with that, and that had nothing to do with Trump. Arguably, that has something to do with the political geography of politics, such that now people who vote on the left are concentrated in cities, and people who tend to support parties on the right are more spread out, and we have geographic-based legislative systems. And so there is an argument that 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 combination of this political sorting where in europe and the uk and france and germany and certainly in the united states people on one political side all live in cities and people who are on the other political side live elsewhere given our geographically based political systems given the fact that we elect people by district that that's going to have an effect. Uh, an effect on our political systems, and there are some people who think that that's a key driver of what's going on. And I, I, I have to say, I do have some sympathy with that view.
2: On this podcast, we like to look ahead and just try and, um, you know, without, I mean, uh, committing academics to firm predictions, you know, which no one, n- n- none like doing, um, but nonetheless, to sort of, you know, try and understand which direction things are going in. When you, yeah, you've 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 given this account of. The role of opposition from from a long time ago. Uh, how do you see the future?
1: I, I guess I try to be hopeful that 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 things will play out in a good way. And what I'm here's what I mean by that. In a place like France, for example, where I, I, I was recently for the year, you have you know Le Pen's party now with a major foothold in the legislature, and one way to see that is as a negative development. And it is from my perspective, a negative development. But another way to see that is the reason why Marine Le Pen was able to get that foothold was because she moderated herself and because she started embracing some, but not all of the values of France's system of legitimate opposition. And so one could read that as a kind of hopeful sign that perhaps in the future, the incentives of these political systems Will encourage people to embrace rather than undermine the system of legi- legitimate opposition. And when I'm trying to be hopeful, that's what I hope. I hope how things will play out in, say, the United States and elsewhere.
2: You're sort of describing a pressure to centralize, almost. Do you
1: I mean to go towards the center? Yeah. That I'm hopeful that the kind of standard incentives that politicians face uh, in order to win office will win out in the end. And I think that's what we should want. I'm hopeful that somebody in the Republican Party challenges Trump because he's become too extreme. That would be salutary. I'm hopeful that over time, as, for example, the population in North Carolina changes, that will change the political disposition of the Republican Party here. As I say, I'm hopeful that the kind of normal rules of politics will kind of bring us back uh, to where we want to be.
2: Which presumably would happen if there was another election and in the, the American case, Trump lost and the next the next candidate would think, right, that, 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 that sort of appeal to the extreme didn't really work. I better be more centrist.
1: Yeah, that would be the ideal outcome. Yeah. I'm hopeful that that will happen.
2: Well, look, it's, it's, it's a great topic and very, very timely. So thank you very much for talking us through your ideas and being so willing to sort of have a rather wide, wide ranging conversation than you may have imagined.
1: No, I'm grateful to you. I've really enjoyed it.